and you know it's really somewhat tone deaf for world or international entities to tell countries like India and Africa hey you need to to build out your renewable energy infrastructure it's like those countries today a lot of them don't even have power in big parts of their countries it's interesting here's just one one anecdote on that but a year ago there was a united nations meeting on hey we need to really be encouraging renewable energy development in the emerging market economies and the question was posed to nigeria you know when when are you going to start focus focusing on building out your renewable energy infrastructure the nigerian representative said see the problem with with you guys right now is you're worried about what's going to happen to climate in 100 years i'm worried about what's going to happen to my my people over the next 100 days hey guys welcome back to the fort podcast my name is chris powers and i want to thank you for joining me today this show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. So today's a uh, a special day for me. Conrad is one of my dearest friends in the world. We went to school together. And if there's somebody that probably shared the same work ethic that I think I have, it's Conrad. We went different directions. Conrad got into the energy industry. I got into uh, real estate. But Conrad's one of the smartest people I know on the topic of energy and oil and gas. And so uh, today's going to be awesome. Conrad, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Chris. Looking forward to this one. All right. Let's just kind of set the stage. Um, you got into energy investment banking right out of school, and God bless you, you're still in it. Um, <laughs> how have things, maybe just kind of paint a picture for what the industry looked like when you started 12 years ago, and maybe what it looks like today with oil back at $111 a barrel as of this morning? Great question. Um, so a lot's changed uh, when we got out of school in 2009. Um, you know, since then, I'll just maybe start there. So in 2009, a big part of you know, energy or oil and gas investment banking when I came here was, was very different than today. I mean, for one, we actually had bankers dedicated to coal. That was a that was another niche of focus at that time that is no longer really relevant. Um, there was a much greater focus on kind of Gulf of Mexico and conventional type assets. Re, you know, shale and the unconventional plays were all still you know essentially in their infancy. So that that evolved quickly since then, um, but. You know, in, in 09, 2010, 2011, a lot of those plays were still very early days. And when I look at, you know, where, what deal flow was back then versus today, it, you know, there was a lot of excitement in shale. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of excitement without a lot of data. And so I, I recall, you know, 
us bringing in international joint venture partners to to some of the domestic operators and selling really large you know shale acreage positions with very little data um you know there we'd have an example of this would be chesapeake's marcellus or appalachian business this was an asset that covered the whole state of pennsylvania from northeast pennsylvania down to west virginia and ohio and we had one type curve in that in that model that was presented and today it'd just be very different to you know today we're encumbered by data there's there's tons of wells it's a much more of a manufacturing process and it's no longer the nascent growth industry in terms of shale as it was a decade ago so very different strategic interests very different um consolidators and players in the space and you know gulf of mexico and some of the conventional stuff that was you know a bigger part of the business a decade ago is actually increasingly you know i think becoming more relevant again today um as shale further matures why is it becoming more relevant today i think there's a you know there's a lot of the public guys have become more agnostic to to being you know hey i have to be in this basin i have to be in that basin it's becoming a i think a more of a uh a traditional public company cash flowing business model where free cash flow yields are in focus distribution or dividend profiles are in focus um and there was this period of time for the last seven eight years probably prior to 2020 where the public markets really, you know, we're seeking, hey, I've got to have a, a pure play Permian guy. I've got to have a pure play Marcellus guy. And I think the market's more agnostic to that today. And there's probably more appreciation for a more diversified uh, asset base than there was for much of the last decade. So you're seeing guys uh, that used to be pure plays in one basin, look at, look at other basins, you know, guys that might have only been oil focused are now looking at some gas deals and vice versa. And um, it's more of an acquire and exploit model, I think, across the whole industry, as opposed to a shale growth model that, that was really in, in vogue for, for the last several years. I'm not trying to ask a loaded question, but like when, when was the inflection point that we started having enough data to start going you know, the Permian Basin's great, but it's maybe not all great. Like, here's where the actual oil is. Like, when did we start getting enough data on how fracking worked and the cost of, you know, pulling oil out of the ground and where it was best and where it was worse? Like, when did the inflection point come to where it kind of changed from that 09, 10, where there wasn't not a lot of data, everybody was kind of wildcatting and figuring it out again? Yeah, I'd say in parts of the play, uh, guys are still cracking the code. It's not a hundred percent uh you know delineated in the midland and the, and the delaware basins but the i'd say the core parts of each basin are are certainly delineated at this point and um there's still not uniform acceptance of one you know right development pattern versus another one right frack design versus another um you know one right set of targets to, to develop in that in that pad program um 
So there's there's still you know debate amongst operators even you know, what the best way to to, to drill uh, undeveloped tracks in the core of each basin. But I would say that the band of differences has has shrunk and continues to shrink with each year. When did when did like oil and gas start becoming a you know call it a tough word I like. When you got started, again, there was a lot of excitement. We've been through this period, call it over the last five or six years, where you know capital's starting to flee. Um, when did that kind of start? And then I want to get back to where we are today at 111, where you know we need some production and we need it quick. But there's this whole narrative that oil and gas is bad for the world, and you've kind of been at the center of it. So I want to get into talking about kind of capital flows. Yeah, very very good question. Um, so clearly, there's been capital flight out of the space. Um, you you can really see that uh, when you look at the the share price performance over the last several years, and a lot of the you know a lot of the energy focused investors' performance, which a lot of that's publicly available. If you look at pension disclosures and endowment disclosures on their returns. They'll, they'll disclose, hey, here's here's how this investment uh, and this fund did versus that fund. You know, the the returns in the sector were abysmal for the last for the better part of the last decade. Um, and I'd say a lot of that was growing pains. You know, guys figuring out the right way to to develop their assets. A lot of that was the industry being a victim of its own success. We went from a period of, you know, when we were in school. You know, oil and gas were commodities that were scarce, and there was a finite amount known in the world of, hey, there's this much available. And then unconventional plays, you know, rapidly changed a lot of that. And we went from, you know, a world of those commodities being scarce to, to a world of who's the, who's the lowest cost producer. And so that, that changed a lot of the return assumptions that guys embedded in and what they were underwriting. Guys were underwriting, you know, prices at $90 in 2014 that ended up being $50 for the next five years, right? Um, same same for gas. Guys were underwriting $5 per MMBTU gas decks, $4 per MMBTU gas decks, and they were realizing $250 or $3 over the next five-year period. So, it, you know, price has a way of making guys look smart or dumb, uh, depending on what happens there. And I think poor returns is first and foremost the, the, the reason for the capital flight, but obviously the energy transition has been a big part of it too. I think that's been more of a excuse, a convenient excuse than a, a real reason for uh, inadequate capital availability. Because you, you look at there's a, there's there's plenty of capitalists out there that'll say, hey, if I have a good return, um, this is a this is a very relevant sector and it's not going anywhere for a long time. I will invest in this. Um, if you have four returns, though, it becomes a lot easier to to kind of tie the green narrative into to what you're saying and and make it less of a focus. But going back to the original question, when when did when did I start seeing that capital flight? I really started seeing it in 
20, late 2018, 2019, I was on a road show for a SPAC and we were out uh, trying to raise a pipe uh, to get a deal done. And we had a great lineup of meetings, um, but there's just a lot of guys that have been burned in the space. You, 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 you have a hundred meetings with investors and, you know, uh, you start to notice when 70 or 80 of those meetings, there are guys saying, wow, I've just lost so much money. And at that point, you're trying to build a book around the last you know, 15 or 20 names that I haven't told you no. And um, that, that's tough. And, and so I, I think that the current price environment could start to change that. I frankly get worried when we see this much volatility, when prices move this fast, that has a way... Uh, and oil and gas of, uh, you know, being a precursor to a, a sharp drop in prices. Um, I do think that this time is a little different, though. And by what I mean there is that the excess deliverability of OPEC, uh, of, of the global producers, is at a historically low percentage point relative to global demand. And Quite simply, the, the global industry has not invested enough capital due in large part to a lot of this capital flight and due in large part to a lot of the international state oil companies or IOCs, you know, increasingly allocating capital to, to renewables and transition efforts. That is going to have, uh, that is going to exacerbate this, this supply and demand issue we're seeing today. And then you put on top of that, you take out uh, the largest, the second largest exporter in the world for oil exports, Russia, with with the ongoing conflict, and you could really have a price, a, a near term price spike that I don't know where the ceiling is. Like north of two hundred, or you really don't know where the ceiling is. I really don't know where the ceiling is because it's the demand is fairly inelastic. It's different than most most supply demand you know curves you look at. You say, hey move up the price twofold and guys are going to use half as much of it or maybe 60% as, as much of that product. Oil's different. Gas is different. Uh, it's much more inelastic. You can double the price and guys will sacrifice other you know parts of their consumption budgets and still fill up their tanks. So it's, it is a price does impact the marginal demand, but the marginal demand is, a fairly small part of the pie. Can you speak to how undercapitalized we are? Like where maybe should we be and where are we? Absolutely. So over the last decade, global upstream capex has averaged, depending on what source you look at, somewhere between six and seven hundred billion a year. Global upstream capex. That's you know, exploring and developing uh, new fields, new 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 production, new reserves. That number for the last two three years has really been closer to half that, three hundred to three hundred and fifty billion. So you look at, you know, I talked about how in 2018, 2019, you really started to, you really started to kind of feel the capital flight. Um, and if you look at just kind of global global upstream oil and gas capex that number in 2020 was just over 300 billion and 2019 it was something similar so 
that's really where you, you've seen global EMP CapEx fall off a cliff. And the difference is, is, is not played itself out in full yet, right? I mean, we've had Guiana, which was a major discovery by Exxon, Hess, and outside of that, in the last five years, there hasn't been many major global discoveries. The U.S. can grow production a little bit from 12 million a day. Where we're at right now, we can get up to 13, 14, maybe. But you really need institutional investors to tell public operators, go increase rate. And they're not telling them that right now. Right now, they're saying, you know, increase my dividend, increase my buyback. And the publics are maintaining really strong capital discipline. They're really adhering to that, which is different. That, that just wasn't the case in, in the last boom cycles. When prices would go up, guys would increase rig count and you know, free cash flow would essentially be the same as in bad years, right? This, this cycle is different. Guys are saying, hey, I want to maximize free cash flow. And this this excess oil price dollar is is going to my my investor. It's not it's not going to my drill bit. So is that good for the consumer? It's good for the investor. Um, I, you know, I think that the consumer is about to to be in a world of much higher energy prices, both oil, gas, and all forms. And Europe's at the front end of this. I mean, so you know, Europe has tied a lot of their energy security with natural gas to to Russia, and even before this Ukrainian conflict. I mean, this last winter, you saw gas prices, natural gas prices in, in Europe reach $40 per MMBTU. You put that on an oil equivalent basis, that's $240 a barrel. That's to heat their homes. You know, that's that's expensive, right? And I mean, you ask, where's the cap on oil prices? I'm not sure. And I think that the macro intermediate picture for where where supply is going to be is uh really challenging i mean we talk with the majors all the time the you know the covered of exploration projects and big new uh big new fields coming online is very is very low it's very light and you just ask yourself where's the 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 you know the new million barrels a day the world needs to to facilitate supply growth coming from, I, I don't know. When you talked about, I, I can't remember what you said, it was uh, the, the Ghana field or something like that, and you said that's the only major discovery we really had in the last five years. Can you put into context for someone that doesn't know exactly how oil and gas works, like how big of a discovery actually was it? Was it that big or it was just big because it was bigger than everything else? It's big. I mean, it's going to be five, six hundred thousand barrels a day. The world demands a hundred million barrels a day, so that's you know half a percent, give or take, of global demand and supply. Just to set the context, you know, when we talk about a hundred million barrels a day, a lot of people in America think about, oh, well, you know, how does America use oil and gas, and you know, we need to move to electric. But can you speak at all? Like when we talk, we always talk about this. There's all these other places in the world. Americans tend to forget that there's places like Africa and, you know, lots of these kind of developing 
uh, countries and continents that they haven't even gotten onto fossil fuels yet. Like how much of the world is just now starting to come onto fossil fuels and how much of the world is actually eating up that hundred million barrels? It's a great question. Um, so you're right. It's, and you know, it's really somewhat tone deaf for, you know, world or international, um, entities to tell countries like India in Africa, hey, you need to to build out your renewable energy infrastructure. It's like those countries today, a lot of them don't even have power in big parts of their countries. And it's it's interesting. Here's just one one anecdote on that. But you know, at the at the one of the I think a year ago there was a United Nations meeting on, hey, we need to really be encouraging renewable energy development and the emerging market economies. And the question was posed to Nigeria, you know, when, when are you going to start focus, focusing on building out your renewable energy infrastructure? And that the Nigerian representative said, see, the problem with, with you guys right now is you're worried about what's going to happen to climate in a hundred years. I'm worried about what's going to happen to my, my people over the next hundred days. And there's just there's a real disconnect in terms of uh, you know attendees to the Paris Climate Accord, and then where a lot of the emerging market economies are today that, that lack basic necessities we all take for granted. Um, so that's a long-winded way of saying I, I think the, there's going to be continued growth of traditional fossil fuel demand in a lot of those emerging market economies for a long period of time. And to assume that that's not the case, that they can skip a step and build out renewable energy grids and power sources is is somewhat unrealistic. Yeah. You don't have to say it, I will, but um, it sounds like the first world countries do a good job virtue signaling to the world while there's still a lot of the world that lives in reality. And like you said, they're still not even on a power grid. I mean, they're they're hoping for clean water on a consistent basis. And we're sitting here in America thinking everybody should drive a Tesla. Again, you don't have to say it, I will, but it's it's just kind of interesting um how little the world thinks about the globe when it comes to to energy. Oil's at $111 a barrel. You're in a you're a banker, so you're seeing transactions left and right. Let's just talk a little bit about uh what are you seeing? I kind of want to talk about it in two ways, M&A wise. And right now with energy, um, you know, like you said, is it 111? It's probably going uh, much higher before it goes lower. It would seem if as a finance guy, there's a lot of good deals to be done right now. So let's just start with kind of M&A activity and we can talk about midstream, upstream, whatever you want. What do you? What have you started to see since we hit negative thirty dollars a barrel last year to where we are today? It's a great question. You know, I think deal flow certainly picked up in the last you know Q two through Q four of twenty one, and continues to be very active in upstream in particular. In midstream, there's been some activity, um, albeit not as active as upstream. Um, you know, I think. The market we've been in has been very supportive of, of consolidation. That's a clear theme from institutional investors. They want less public companies that are bigger. 
and have more scale and, and more ability to you know optimize capital allocation and everything else. So there's a clear mandate from the investor base saying consolidate, do deals that are creative to where you trade, and you know reduce your cost structure. And M and A is a great way to 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 do achieve those objectives. Um, so M and A market has been very busy the last year. I, I will say this recent move up, and anytime there's a move up or down this fast, I start to get nervous and and what what the impact that'll have on, on deal flow. I mean, naturally, sellers are going to want um, guys to value their assets using $110 oil decks, and then you know, uh, and get there, especially with the backwardation we have in the curve right now, which is a really yeah, so. Every commodity has a you know a futures curve where you can you know, buy oil or sell oil at a certain future date for delivery. And if you look at kind of spot oil prices, yes, they're at 115 a barrel today. But if you look at 12 months out, that number is you know 95 dollars. And if you look 24 months out, that number is 80 dollars. If you look 48 months out, that number's $70. So, you you know, from spot month of 115 to four years out with oil close to 70 bucks, that's some very significant backwardation in the curve. And that's how guys typically underwrite uh, acquisitions or M&A and, and, and oil and gas. They'll use strip pricing, which is the futures curve. And that's a historically high level of backwardation. And you can make the, you know, I think the I think the logical question of that is why is the curve so backwardated? And the reality is, is today it's a seller's over it's a seller's over market. You've got uh, a lot of natural uh, hedgers, so EMP companies that like to hedge out, and there's very little demand on the buy side to buy futures contracts and, and push prices up in the out years. That That's essentially limited to speculators because a lot of the airlines aren't doing that. Refiners aren't doing that. And you've got a, you know, a fairly financial market and, and the, that's very speculative in the back end with very low liquidity. So we've got really high backwardation. That's not good for M&A. Um, and we've got a lot of volatility that's not good for M and A. Um, that just increases the bid ask spread between what you know buyers may be willing to underwrite versus what sellers hope to get. Is anybody raising funds right now, or is it easy to raise capital? I know, I don't know too much, but uh, you know, hearing things like NGP and you know NCAP over the last couple of years have had a much more difficult time raising funds than they've ever had. Uh, is that is that shifting? Like, is are the private markets able to raise capital right now? Um, you know, you saw Larry Fink come out not too long ago and kind of reverse course on his thoughts on ESG and you know letting capital flow into oil and gas. Like, is there positive momentum that capital is coming back into the space? Maybe that's my question. Great question. Yeah, I think the sentiment around private equity firms being able to raise money is better today than it was a year ago. That's a fact. Um, are, are the fund sizes and targets going to be as large as they were two, three, four, five years ago? 
The answer to that is likely no. Um, but several of the largest energy dedicated funds are are outraising funds, and I expect some of those to be some some fairly big numbers. I'd say the biggest change in kind of capital flows has probably been uh, the source of the capital flows. You know, historically, endowments played a very meaningful role in, in a lot of private equity funds. Um, most endowments have have likely permanently fleed the space. There may be some that come back, but Endowment capital is certainly uh, more challenging to raise than oil and gas. There's just a, an immense amount of social pressure at a lot of those institutions today uh, against fossil fuels that didn't exist historically. So that's a major source of capital that's, that's largely exited the space. Pensions are still very active investing in, in, in oil and gas funds, and I'd expect that to continue. There'll be certain state you know, pensions um, in certain areas that may have more social pressure than others. Um, but you look at, you know, CalPERS and CalSTRS, the two biggest funds and or two biggest pensions in California, and they're both very large oil and gas investors. Um, you know, so will that hold? That's TBD. Um, and then you look at the other, you know, large source of, of private equity fund dollars, and that's really sovereign wealth funds. And I think what you're seeing from all the private capital sources, you know, endowments, pensions, sovereign wealth funds, family offices, foundations, um, they're still investing, but they're investing in less funds and they want more flexibility in how they invest. And I think the private equity firms are tailoring their fundraising efforts in, in ways to appeal to their largest investors. You know, there's a, a fund out there today that's raising capital that's going to effectively have silos where LPs can participate in, at their desired level in different silos. What would those silos be? There'll, there'll be an upstream silo, a midstream silo, an, inter, an energy transition silo, and they'll basically say, look, um, if you don't want to invest in upstream, uh, you know, here's energy infrastructure slash midstream, and here's my transition silo, and they can still commit to those two. You know, or if someone is open to still investing in upstream and doesn't want or buy into the transition, you know, investing thesis, they can invest in just that, or they can invest in all three. But it's you're seeing funds give LPs more flexibility in how they invest in the space because the one size fits all, hey, I'm, I'm going to go raise, you know, $5 billion fund and, you know, kind of blind pool where that goes is uh, less desired by LPs today. There's just got, there's a, there's a uh, less uniform uh, interest in how guys want their capital invested. Um, and is it fair to say that the the ESG kind of uh, viewpoint on this is fossil fuels are bad because of climate change? Is there any other besides climate change? Is there any other reason that ESG is kind of pulled back uh, the folks that are interested in this industry? I think that's the the largest culprit, right? It's just you know, hey, I I want to I want to you know 
invest in a way that adheres to the Paris Climate Accord. I want to achieve, you know, net zero on carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's the biggest driver of of, of some of the disinterest in, in fossil fuels from ESG minded investors. Can you speak at all to kind of labor and employment, maybe both on the upstream, midstream, but really what you're seeing in oil field services? Have a lot of people left the industry? Where are all these people? You know, is it what does it look like right now if, if you're um, trying to hire people in oil and gas, no matter what sector you're in? I'd say, you know, um, I'll just start with our group because as a specific anecdote, our like the Jeffries Energy Invest Mangan Group has has never been larger. We've we've got 112 people in our group. Uh, I think most energy focused investment banks are certainly looking to grow in this market. Um, I think upstream companies are hiring opportunistically, but everyone is probably more acutely focused on GNA and cost structure than than they were in past cycles. Uh, the service industry side is certainly in a hiring mode right now, playing catch up. And there's we're seeing cost inflation across the board. You know, when when oil prices go up, you know, people don't always get this point, but the correlation between kind of service costs and oil prices is very, very high. And so when prices go down, a lot of people get fired, a lot of you know crews have a lack of contracts and so they'll do things for cheaper. And the, the inverse is true when when prices go up. So um, the returns to the to the producer are uh, you know less elastic than you'd think given capex is a lot lower when prices are down capex is a lot higher to drill the same well when when prices are up and, and certainly the service side right now is hiring I want to circle back to one thing you said a second ago when we were talking about the the uh, delta between kind of capex needed for upstream versus what we're currently getting. I mean, there could be like a three to $400 billion delta. Maybe that's shrunk a little bit. But somebody might say, well, yeah, there's less money going into oil and gas, but we've put all this money into solar, so we, we're getting energy in other places. So maybe the question is like, because we have that delta of three to $400 billion, that money's obviously been going other places has the other places kind of made up for the lack of oil and gas or like, how do you think about that? I don't know if I'm asking it the right way, but that, that money had to go somewhere. No, it's a really good question. I I mean, ESG and renewable investment has been immense and it needs to be uh, for, for the next several decades. Uh, You know, despite being an oil and gas guy, I'm not opposed or against renewable energy. I I think all forms of energy are going to be needed to meet you know, global population growth, uh, you know these emerging market economies, you know, uh, improving their their uh, you know their 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 lifestyles, and you know that that capital is uh, productive. It's at granted a much lower return, and you know we hear it directly from a lot of the the majors and state companies we work with that invest in renewable projects and we also have an ESG arm in our, our group as well. I mean the return thresholds in, in that space are just much lower. And you know, one anecdote uh from a major state oil company is look, we'll we'll invest in those types of projects even 
if it's low single digit type returns because we have to. Um, and that's what you know our stakeholders require from us today. There's been some public companies that have done that more forcefully than others, uh, largely majors. And I think investor reception to that is still mixed. Um, you know, you could you could make the case that it's been poor because uh, some of the guys that have done that the most have actually traded at depressed valuations. So, you know, yes, that capital is productive. It, it's not directly replacing the demands for oil, though. I mean, the reality is, and, and not a lot of people appreciate this, you could take every uh, internal combustion engine car off the road in the world and oil demand would be in a similar place as it is today in 40 years, just off other demand sources of oil. So, you know, that's that's something a lot of people don't appreciate. You know, of the 100 million barrels a day, the, the world demands for oil, only about 35 million barrels of that is for cars, for, for you know, consumer you know, mobility. You know, much of the rest of the demand is uh, jet fuel, it's you know, asphalt, it's petrochemicals, it's other derivatives, it's you know uh, ships, cargoes. So there's a there's a number of uh, you know, sources of demand, and, and you know cars and consumer driving is just one of the one of the sources to the pie. But at a macro level, we, we've certainly underinvested the last several years, and um, I, I think. Any you know long-term for- demand forecast you look at for oil, even the most bearish forecasts, still project somewhere between 90 and 100 million barrels a day of demand in 50 years. The commodity is not going anywhere, and and anyone that that thinks we'll be off oil in 10, 20, 30 years is just has not studied the data. Is there any bear case in the short term other than capital shows back up? We drill a ton of, of oil, supplies pick back up. You know, obviously a global recession or anything could slow demand down a little bit. But if somebody said to you right now, like, what's the bear case for the price of oil, not the economy, but what is the bear case for the price of oil over the next five years? What would you say? That's a hard one because I'm such a bull and I, I don't normally take a stance on price, but I, it's hard not to be a bull right now. Um, I think the bear case, if you were to have one, would be, you know, there's some breakthrough disruptive technologies that emerge that aren't known today, right? Like, could there be, you know, uh, battery technology that's developed for, for airplanes? Could there be um, replacements at a, at a large scale for plastics? You know that's that, that doesn't require oil. Could there be, um, you know, ESG type asphalt uh, technology that breaks through that doesn't require fossil fuels? Could there be, um, you know, larger scale adoption of EVs than than what's currently expected? Um, you know, today, EVs are still a very small part of the market. I think even you know at the end of the decade, they're still expected to be, you know, a sub ten percent. Uh, part of the market, you know, in 2030, could EVs become 
50, 60% of the market. Sure, they could. That would be bearish for, for oil. Um, so I think the, the short answer, though, is I, I think you, you really need kind of some breakthrough technologies or or breakthrough adoption on EVs that just isn't anticipated at the present. Is it, Just to expand on that, um, from your point of view, are there any interesting technologies that have you know, come through the bank or that you're seeing or companies that are transacting where they're maybe like, I think if you think of oil and gas, the last big technology breakthrough, maybe I'm wrong on this was kind of fracking and I'm not at, this isn't necessarily even an oil and gas question, but is there anything out there that's exciting that could put a dent in oil usage? I think probably, the, it, you know, in that camp, one of the most exciting things being tested right now is probably alternatives to lithium ion batteries because that's the biggest problem with renewable energy really at the end of the day i mean one it's intermittent it's it's only available when the wind's blowing or the sun's shining and so it's an intermittent power source that effectively requires utility scale or or very large scale storage for that to have practical use in in the grid um and that's a, that's something that a lot of people don't appreciate. You know, power storage is something that's still uh, very challenging to do at any real scale. And there's some, I think, some emerging tests and and uh, and alternatives to lithium-ion batteries that could that could you know allow for much more significant storage of power. And that, to me, would be a, a pretty big game changer. I mean. The biggest batteries in the world today can only hold minutes uh, or seconds of power demand in their regional areas. Um, if you had an alternative to lithium-ion batteries that allowed you to to hold days or weeks of, of power at a large scale, that that would be disruptive. That that would make um, the you know the ability to to supply EV demand at a large scale much more, much more actionable. Okay, on on Russia and Ukraine for a second, is do you have any data on like by the you know what we're living through right now, what that conflict is doing to the world, albeit how many you know how much energy is being um, you know withheld right now, or how how is that situation actually impacting the world like today? In terms of oil markets, or in terms of just in general, just in general, from an energy perspective, um, obviously it's um, you know there's a lot of people that depend on that energy. Um, I'm sure that a lot of the majors have you know fields in in Russia, and now they're having to maybe take a stance. But like, is there anything interesting that you're seeing that's like because this has happened, this is what's going to happen in the market, and maybe if you have any um, forward-looking thoughts on how this extrapolates, even if the war ended, you know, as we're speaking. Yeah, I mean, I think what you've seen is a lot of the majors and and, and, and international producers that have holdings in, in Russia, they've said, look, we're going to stop all further investment and we're going to seek to divest those as quickly as we can. I mean, it's obviously not... Uh, it's obviously going to be a buyer's market for those assets because there's 
not going to be a lot of risk appetite to say, hey, I'll, I'll go buy you know shares or interest in, in Russian oil production. But I think I wouldn't be surprised if there's um, some hedge funds out there that look at those investments as, hey, this could really turn around if, if Russia, you know, if there's a ceasefire and, and relations with them normalize in the international community. Um, so I think, you know, your first question, though, would be, um, I think the the biggest near-term catalyst you could see as it relates to Russia and the oil markets would be if the U.S. administration uh, puts a ban on, on oil, export, oil exports from Russia. That's already effectively happening without them putting a real ban on it um, because there's no ships that are willing to pick up Russian oil right now. So um, that's why you're seeing this, this rapid rise in oil prices uh, at the front end is because guys are effectively, you know, pricing the, the market without Russian oil exports today. Um, but you put the official export ban in place and, and I think there'd be a further spike in prices. How, how big is Russia uh, in relation to like the oil market, how much does the world actually depend on them? Any kind of key data points that come to top of mind when you think of how important Russia is in this whole puzzle? Very important. I mean, very, very important. I mean, the three biggest oil producers and really the big three, every, everyone else after these first three is much less relevant, but it's Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the U.S. And they each make, give or take, 12 million barrels a day right now. So that's 36 million barrels a day. That's you know uh, more than a third of total world oil production. And so you look at who, who are the biggest exporters. The the U.S. exports very little. Um, Saudi Arabia is the biggest because they they've their domestic demand is much smaller than what they've produced. But Russia is the second biggest exporter in the world. So they have you know somewhere give or take around 8 million barrels a day that's exported globally. You take those 8 million barrels a day out of the global market because no one wants to buy them or because they're sanctioned. And that is going to have a very dramatic effect on the price of oil. Who is the largest consumer of oil? Is it the United States or is it China or India or neither of them? Today, the U.S. is still the largest consumer of oil they're not the u.s is not the largest consumer of energy that it, that would be china but china is expected to to you know eclipse u.s oil demand here in the coming years can we talk about nuclear for a second if you have anything to say on it sure it's it seems to be a widely adopted almost bipartisan maybe not bipartisan but just from reading Twitter and a lot of things, it seems like it's something that a lot of people from both sides of the aisle are kind of agreeing on is this really clean source of energy. We've come a long way. Maybe we understand it better. It's not as risky. Are you seeing any developments in nuclear that could be interesting for the world or is it still kind of under the rug? Yeah, I think nuclear is, you know, you could argue nuclear and natural gas are really the two keys to to reducing carbon emissions globally. Now, whether nuclear will will be increasingly adopted or used is a totally different question. Um, 
a lot of countries, there's real political pressure not to, to, to not rely on nuclear power. Um, France probably has the, the most nuclear power as a percent of their uh, power supply of, of any country in the world. And it's a very, very clean source of power. It's, you know, Bill Gates has a book on nuclear power. He has a documentary too. He's firmly of the camp that it's the key to to reducing carbon emissions globally. It's clean, it's predictable, it's a base load, so it's not intermittent, and it's a it's a very good use of power. But it's been troubled by historically, you know, uh, historical events that have created a lot of political sensitivity around nuclear power. Uh, Chernobyl you know, power plant explosion in Ukraine is the best example of that. I mean, that was the worst nuclear disaster, uh, you know, nuclear power disaster of all time. Uh, so there's there's certainly a, uh, a lot of political sensitivity around nuclear power. Um, there's There's been a lot of investment in trying to build uh, many nuclear reactors and power plants. I think that that's a promising uh, front. And, you know, I'm I'm in the camp of we need all forms of energy to meet global power demand, and nuclear should absolutely be a big part of that puzzle. And is it fair to say the reason why nuclear is not moving at the speed it should is because people still rem- remember Chernobyl and Ukraine? It's like the disaster that occurred from that is what stopped it, or is what are the other reasons why something that seems pretty logical is not getting done at scale? It's, you know, it's not isolated just to that. This happened in, in Japan as well. Um, th- this is something that, you know, there's a number of bad nuclear power uh, events uh, over the course of its history. So, it, you know, safety in that power source is not as, has got a, a mixed track record. Um, but I think technology and, 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 and safety today is much better there's just a public opinion kind of reluctance to to rely on it. I think, you know, there's real pressure in New York right now, for instance, to to decommission their nuclear power plant that's 30 miles north of Manhattan. I mean, I, I think a lot of people say, I don't want to be near it. And so you then get forced into, well, where, where can I geographically put this? Um, and there's, there's, it's just, it's still a bit of a political football um, and the, the court of public opinion. I want to bring it back to oil and gas, and then we'll we'll get down to the last few questions. But um, are there any basins that are coming back online that have been asleep in America for the last, call it four or five years, you know, I, or, or basins that have been sleepier than others? Is every basin kind of rocking and rolling right now? Or are we kind of still sticking to the Permian and a few of the... Uh, the ones that are a little more predictable. The the Permian is the one that matters the most, um, and that's where the, the largest amount of strategic interest and demand is. It's also the generally the lowest cost oil focused basin in the U.S. So it's it's very much the center of, of gravity and and the domestic oil and gas markets. Um, on the gas side. Marcellus and the Haynesville are really the two points of, of activity and focus. Marcellus is, is somewhat plagued by egress issues. It's hard to get gas out of the basin. 
So growth in that basin is is somewhat limited and governed by the existing FERC regulated pipes that can get gas out of the state. And the current administration and you know, state pressures around new new export pipes out of the state are, are really tough. Um, so that's not likely to change in, in Appalachia. Haynesville is, is near the Gulf Coast demand centers. It has uh, you know, much more growth potential relative to Appalachia. And so you've seen a lot of M&A activity in, in the Haynesville in the last 18 months. Um, a lot of the large private producers there have recently been consolidated. And you go, you look at the other, you know, major plays in the U.S. The Bakken certainly is, is more mature. There's just less runway. Um, it's it's very developed at this point. You know, there's I don't have the exact stats in front of me, but if you if you said there was, uh, you know, a, a set percentage of how much of the of the, the Economic sticks have been developed. You, you'd probably say, you know, 60, 70% of the economic sticks and the Bakken have been developed today. So there is some runway, but it's just limited. And then you look at the Eagleford, it's, it's the same. So I think this all points again to, to more of the bull case for oil, which is, you know, there's a finite amount of inventory, economic inventory left in the Bakken, the finite amount of economic inventory left in the Eagleford. And the Permian is very vast. There, there's, you know, there's more stacked targets there than anywhere else in the U.S. Um, but much of the core in the two plays is, is rapidly getting developed. If you go operator by operator and you kind of say, hey, what's their core inventory life? It's been extended a little bit because in this world of, of capital discipline, guys are running less rigs, and that's kind of um, you know, have had the effect of increasing their inventory lives. But you know, we've we've built out you know DSU that's uh, a drilling unit by drilling unit type model for the whole Permian. And if you look at the core of, of, of the Midland and the Delaware, there's probably less than 10 years left of core inventory left. Can you define real quick core, what core means to you? Core to me means locations that can be developed at $50 oil and you make a 20 plus percent type return. Got it. Okay. Sorry I interrupted you. No, I mean it it's a subjective point. It's not it's not black and white and guys will have different answers to that, but the you know the highly economic cores of, of the Miller and the Delaware Basin have less than 10 years of of inventory left. So we're not talking about decades of of really economic stuff. Which just tells you, you know, guys are going to have to move to the fringes of those plays. Guys are going to have to look at uh, extending the development fairways of other plays. And what's what's that all call for? That all calls for higher oil prices. How much? Um, and back to like kind of tying it into technology for a second. But when somebody develops a, an oil and gas well. They're not pulling 100% of the oil out of the ground, aren't they? Only pulling like 15 to 20% of the oil, and then the, and then pressure drops, so you can't get the other 80% off. Or is that is that wrong? No, that's that's exactly right. You've got you know, geologic maps that say here's the original oil in place, um, OOIP, and then you've got your recovery factor, 
which is what is your type curve? What, what is your well going to ultimately produce over its 50-year life um, relative to what's in the ground? And that range is play-by-play, target-by-target, area-by-area, and you know, somewhat uh, influenced by completion design and, and everything else that goes into developing an asset. But you know, those, those recovery factors in the primary development phase, which is you know, drilling a well and producing it, um, you know, range from anywhere from 10 to 35%, depending on what play you're talking about. There's a secondary phase of development that occurs in a lot of plays, though, where guys will reinject those wells with CO2, or you know, that's why in, in the 90s and 2000s there's a lot of CO2 floods, a lot of water floods. Um, those are called you know, secondary uh, production phases, where guys are injecting things to build up reservoir pressure or, or pull incremental reserves out of the ground. So. And those types of assets, the recovery factor will, will go up, you know, uh, as as they produce further. But in general, you're right. There's going to be a lot of a lot of unproduced reserves that are in the ground that technology over time could could make more economic, or prices over time could make more economic to produce. Yeah. So that could be put that on the technology list of things to be created. That would have a huge impact if you could find a way to get a another 20% out of the ground. Absolutely. It wouldn't be an energy podcast if we didn't talk about crypto in the energy world, both from how it's starting to show up uh, in the oil and gas space using like flared gas to kind of power this stuff, but then also in kind of the uh, more alternative energy space, the amount of power it's taking to you know, create this crypto ecosystem. So maybe I'll just start from your seat at Jeffries. Do you guys have any interaction with the crypto world from a, how energy is impacting it? Not from a, are you guys buying and trading it? But, you know, what are you seeing of how crypto is impacting the energy industry? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I don't have a lot of direct uh, influence from crypto there, there's certainly guys out there on the ESG uh, front pitching it as a good solution to to flared gas, um, and that actually kind of goes into one of the questions you asked earlier around what are what are other initiatives ESG minded investors are focused on. Certainly, a big focus of that community is reducing flared gas, and in particular, reducing vented gas um, because gas is methane. And methane has 40x the greenhouse gas, uh, you know, heat storage ability as carbon. So methane is uh, a, a very potent greenhouse gas relative to to carbon dioxide. Um, and so guys using uh, flared or vented gas as a power source, as opposed to emitting it to the atmosphere. To the power, you know, these hashing computers that mine Bitcoin. It's a good, uh, you know, economic solution and ESG solution for guys to to, to mine uh, crypto with a effectively free power source. All right, I felt I thought I would end it on maybe a, a fun note. Um, this has been awesome as always. 
But you got to enter the industry and work with one of the maybe most iconic oil and gas people that really revolutionized shale. You got to work with Aubrey quite a bit. Can you maybe just speak to like what you learned from him and what working with him was like and you know why he's missed by a lot of people? Man, I I miss that guy and I think about him a lot. Um he was the most charismatic leader I've ever worked with. He was such a visionary and he was such a people person. And even from a really early age in my or junior part of my career, he was just went out of his way to let me know how much he appreciated, you know, the, the hard work we were doing for him at the time. Um, but he was someone who who woke up every day and had a to do list, and he would go through it. And he, you know, he'd have an idea Monday, and there would be a signed PSA, you know, Friday. Um, he he uh, he had a risk tolerance that was. Uh, unique he had <laughs> he had That's a good a, way to put he it had, he, he had a he had a uh, a personality that was you know just you you wanted to be around him you wanted to 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 hear what he was going to say or do next so i'm i miss working with him all the time and uh i could go i could tell you a number of different stories about his character but now he was a Phenomenal leader and, and deeply missed. Did he sleep? <laughs> he did sleep, but he'd wake up really early. And, you know, I was in his office uh, in Oklahoma City a couple times, and he had a recycling bin next to his desk. And every day, his, his admin would bring in different reports. And he would just, you know, throughout the day, he'd throw the reports in the recycling bin. He'd take the recycling bin home with him. He'd come back the next day having read it all, and then he'd just wake up, you know, sending a million emails in the morning with a empty recycling bin and rinse and repeat. Go start it again. I love it. All right, man. This was awesome. I, I'm lucky that I get to hear it from you one on one off the podcast, but this was we nailed it. Energy's uh it's a it's an interesting world, um, what we're going through. And I'll just leave it to you. And maybe you have something, maybe you don't. If, if you were to leave the audience with something to think about, is there anything like kind of on your mind that we haven't covered or maybe a data point or something that could leave people thinking? I, I think if it wasn't already clear, you could probably hear from me through the interview that you know fossil fuels aren't going anywhere. Gas in particular should be considered a solution, not a problem. And and the long term carbon objectives of 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 you know everyone. You look at what the U.S. has done from coal to gas conversion over the last decade, and it's remarkable what it's done to producing carbon emissions. You know, if if that could be applied in China and India and other places where um, there's a ton of new coal power plants coming on, uh, you know. Carbon carbon neutrality is not something that's impossible to achieve. I think fossil fuels will be a part of the, the long term energy picture, and and guys should not be uh, should not view gas as a dirty commodity. It's a clean commodity that really changed the U.S. picture, and it can it can change a lot of other countries' pictures rapidly too. I love it, man. Thank you so much for uh, for your time as always, dude. This was. We knocked it out of the park on this one. 
Awesome, Chris. Well, appreciate the time. And thanks again. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.